breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome to another episode of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. This is the place where you'll find that American Muslim patriot who not only seeks the truth, but seeks rational approaches to our crises. And for long, I've focused on radical Islam, countering the ideology that has a constituency of a quarter of the world's population. This week, this month, possibly for the next foreseeable future, we're going to be confronting as a community, as a nation, as a world, the threat of the coronavirus. And how do we approach that? How do we deal with times of fear? We're at war against the virus in a battle that none of us have fought. Many are saying it's the most significant crisis they've seen since World War II, eclipsing economically and socially and culturally and governmentally the threats after 9-11. I'll leave it to all of you to do the hand-wringing on comparisons when often they're not apropos. They're all different situations. But I will tell you some of the skill sets that we've worked on here in fighting Islamist terror has been about proportionality. What do I mean by, what do I, what do I mean by proportionality? I'm talking about the ability to respond appropriately, not too much, not too little, to keep us safe, to invoke the right laws, the right protections, the right security apparatus without sacrificing our very ideals. And that was the battle always between the left and the right about radical Islamism. The left wanted to pretend it didn't exist. Uh, Islam is just a faith. These are just uh, psychotic individuals. They're all lone wolves. When in fact we found out they ended up being known wolves and that we had viral ideologies that were spreading and we weren't confronting. We were being too coddling to a faith community that ultimately was our greatest asset in this war, but ultimately also harbored an ideology that they were not confronting and needed a little prodding to confront, and we needed a strategy to engage those who wanted to reform. Now we have a biological entity, a virus that is new, is novel, and we don't have a vaccine, we don't have a community that's protected, we don't have data, we don't know what the real information is, and proportionality has been thrown out the window. The same people who were willing to, and this is left or right, it's not a partisan debate, but it ends up often being that, but the same people who are willing to throw out the window risks of future attacks and threats to our way of life because of fears of discrimination, fears of overreach of the government, fears of stigmatization of a faith community. Now, continually say not enough is being done and we found that our entire economy has been shut down. We can sustain that for a week or two. with simply having a recession, I say simply a recession, which is a massive, massive price to pay as we all hear about the attempts to protect us from the savages of this recession that now is underway as 
large swaths of American community are no longer working. But if it goes beyond weeks, we're talking about depression numbers. We're talking about unsalvageable recovery times that would take decades, not months or years. So my point that I wanted to talk to you about, I'm not an economist. I am a doctor. I talked to you last week about some of the brass tacks of the coronavirus. I'm internist, primary care. been seeing patients on the front lines of primary care, family-based medicine. I do internal medicine for over 25 years. But everything in life, whether it's the macroeconomic, macro-security issues or microeconomic and micro-security issues of our families is based on proportionality. And once we have the decisions, once we have the, I'm sorry, once we have the information, we can then make the decisions we need to move forward. We will make mistakes. We will look back and say, boy, I wish we had known this, or I wish we had acted on B instead of A. But at least we come together in your families and you make a decision based on proportionality. And what I wanted to talk about today in this, in the midst of a shutdown and mass stay-at-home orders in various states uh, spreading across the country. Listen, one of the best images I saw this week was the cartoon that had that, had that iconic picture redrawn of Americans, like we saw in Iwo Jima, like we saw after 9-11, raising that flagpole. And this time on their backs, they had written doctor, nurse, scientist, medical assistant. And that's true. This battle has shown us that yet another segment of American society are our new first responders. Whether it was the first responders after 9-11 that lost their lives running into the towers rather than away from them. These first responders that don't have enough test kits, that don't have especially enough masks and, pro- and personal protective equipment, we're trying, to, we're trying to find resources for their protective equipment, mechanisms of saving the protective equipment so that they can be reused. <laughs> Imagine the country where you get fined massively if you have a Diet Coke in the patient area because of cleanliness. Now is talking about heating up in microwaves, masks, N95 masks, the only ones that are really protective from transmission. Remember, the only place you can get the virus through your eyes, nose, and mouth, and the primary care people that are getting samples and otherwise are at the highest risk. This is why we're seeing so many infected healthcare workers. And now we're talking about heating up our own masks to reuse them. I ran out of masks in my office last week, and now we're reusing a few of the N95s, and I won't let any of my staff get the samples. We have the patients park outside, and I run down and get the sample. And yes, we've begun seeing positive results on some of them. We're not letting them in the office. We're screening them. We're doing many more televisits. We're modifying. We're adapting in healthcare to try to limit the spread. We can't prevent it. But what I want to have talk about, number one, my number one concern is, again and again, fear and pandemonium and extremism seems to win out over... So I get it. We're, we're in a hurry. 
We have a threat. We want to mitigate and flatten that curve. So the government acts. Fine. We're on shutdown. But as we shut down immediately, there should be a public, transparent conversation. I'm seeing one-way conversations. People like Governor Cuomo in New York are being applauded for their leadership. Yeah, it's, he articulates the issues well, talks about transparency, and gives us some wonderful platitudes. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of room for criticism of what's happening in New York City and New York State. Nobody was prepared for this. Nobody's saying that he should have known better. But just locking down an entire state may not be the right answer. Did we come to this answer as a state, as a country? Yes, the state should decide on their own. But now they're saying they need they need salvation from the federal government because of the economic destructions that they're weaving on their own people because of their decisions. And again... My number one goal here is not that I would come up with a different answer, but the process of determining a proportional response for our society needs to be different. The process. So number one, it's about process. Number two, it's about facts. What are the facts we are dealing with? The numbers that are being used to make decisions. Some of the smartest people, as I told you last week, Dr. Tony Fauci, one of the smartest people in medicine today, unbelievable reputation, and truly has the, has the brain power to back that up. But in his specialty, he's not a mass disaster management expert. He's not an yeah, expert in uh, economics and, and, and balancing issues. If his own family, if my own family came to an issue where we have however many people in your family, we have five in the nuclear and then let's say 20 in the immediate uh, family, and one person falls sick, God forbid, with some disease, what do you do to mitigate disease to the others in your family and those considerations include not only the spread of that disease, if it were an infectious disease needing quarantine, but the economic devastation. The economic devastation. And that economic devastation, should it be at the expense of everybody else? And that's really... Once you get the facts, once you talk about the process, we should have a mechanism as a country to have a conversation with rational people at the table that include the doctors and infectious disease specialists, the health system organizers, the, the economists to tell us what's going to happen through social isolation and how isolated should that social isolation be. Are there choices instead of A, complete isolation, or B, no isolation and having football games and basketball games and, and uh, March Madness? Is there no medium in between there? So that mitigation of risk, how much risk should be mitigated? And as we balance one side, what tips up on the other side? What are the economic ramifications? We haven't modeled this before, but at least... I'm not, you know, as I'm watching, flipping through channels, uh, interacting far less, as all of you are also interacting far less, you're stuck interacting with your monitor in this isolation, distancing period. 
other than the Wall Street Journal's pieces this week and some pieces in Medium and elsewhere, Cato, are we seeing any rational conversation about what should be done? This perseverance, this, this perseverance and obsession with focusing every piece of energy we have on beating the virus, like the virus is the only enemy, doesn't make any sense. It's not how you make any decisions in your life. What happened to balanced decision-making? So these three things, process, balanced decision-making, and facts. The process, fine, the government moves quickly, but then we need to have a, they have a task force. He has a coronavirus task force. The president does that, then tells us a briefing every day. They've been doing, I think, very well in relaying information as they know it and working with leaders in the states from Governor Cuomo to Governor Ducey here in Arizona and others all over the country. And those decisions are varying. Governor Newsom in California locked down his state. 40 million people have basically become homebound. But then... Day two, we should have begun to have massive conversations, organized conversations, not just conference calls with the president and the heads of CEOs of massive industry about how they're going to get bailed out and other things. Okay, that's partly, I'm sure that's necessary. It's far above our pay grade. But where is the conversation to begin to educate Americans about maybe just like your family makes decisions when illness comes, economic, psychological, social cultural related to issues when you balance those decisions how do you come to a final decision on what you do today what you do tomorrow what you do next monday next saturday and next month those decisions evolve but you're constantly reevaluating and basing them based on your ability to sustain the rest of the family and your ability to balance risks and benefits. So let's talk about that for a second. Balancing risks and benefits. I do that every day as a medical ethicist, provide bioethics consultations to families that are trying to figure out, should we withdraw the ventilator? Should we make mom or dad or my brother a DNR? Should we move on and do everything possible? You look at the amount of pain and suffering. You look at the amount of of resources you look at what's costing them all these things cost for the doctor is never an issue in this country first world most advanced country in the planet bedside decisions are not related to macroeconomic decisions however macroeconomic decisions play a role in what insurance companies decide they will or will not pay for what the hospital will or will not pay for if they're also in the insurance industry so these things are part of the decision Every day in healthcare, we make decisions balanced and informed by the macroeconomics. But there's a firewall between what's done at the bedside, and some of that firewall is mitigated by patients having coinsurance, having co-pays, and other things. But still, there's a balance. I remember cases where patients had been in the hospital for six months, and they had reached the cap on their insurance of $2 million or something, and then... The oncologist says, you know, you can try one more round of another bone marrow transplant, but that'll be over $100,000. And the family says, well, we're well to do, but that would wipe out every other savings we have for 
the kids' schools and elsewhere, and we love our mom, but we don't even know if that's effective. The last two have failed, and she's reached her cap. So they make an economic decision after having had the best care in the world for years. And still, as much as we think we can beat every disease, sometimes we can't. And resources play a role in that decision. So to think that now we have a virus that we knew about, we can wring our hands about whether absolutely there's no doubt the Chinese withheld information and some data showing that 95% of affected lives could have been protected had the Chinese immediately revealed the bug, the type, the source and their experiences in late December, early January. So we didn't find out any details till late January that could have helped us. And we began already four to six weeks, if not more, behind the power curve. But decision-making, decision-making as a country, just like you approach it in your family, the ethical approach to decision-making is you don't let one crisis, one severe horrific event It's not even an event. This is a three to six month process that we're undergoing and it may repeat itself. You don't let that destroy everything else. And again, please don't think that I as a doctor don't care about every life lost. When it comes to my patients, I will fight for their care as long as I have a breath. But as an American using that firewall separated from my personal family life, my personal practice. As an American who sees my country, the other patients of a country of over 350 million total population, as our other patients now are going to see themselves in the acute and long-term process, suffer severe economic stressors, inability to pay for medications, needs that they have, then have other diseases exacerbate. I'm trying to tell patients that our offices, our medical offices are safe. We are screening. We don't have patients with fevers coming in. We're safer than any place they could go. They need to continue to care for their chronic medical conditions because if they become sicker, the virus will wreak more havoc. So that principle applies to everything as a society. We cannot let other things fall apart because the virus will cause more havoc. So there's a balance. There's a risk-benefit analysis that has to happen. And we can't wait until we get into economic destitution as a country from a lockdown forced by a government in order to say, wait a minute, now we can't do this. Let's, re- let's rearrange our approach. But we approach our country our citizens with a soft landing we tell them look this decision may be wrong we may be making some mistakes but one of the things we will not let happen is the complete destruction of our economy so how do you do that well listen so social distancing is important it's obviously a a a infectious disease 101 approach to highly communicable diseases viruses So you stop, absolutely, you stop the entertainment issues, the stadiums, the concerts, the March Madnesses, and all these other things. That makes sense. Amusement parks, high-density spread of viruses until we start to see a flattening of that curve. So that is going to affect one sector, one segment of society. Shut down all the restaurants? That's a different question. Maybe for two weeks. Yeah, those should be areas that should be shut down. 
but start mandating ability to separate people by six feet. Start beginning processes. Please, I've seen one or two articles about what happened in Taiwan, but how come Taiwan could invoke things where they only barely had 100 cases, if that? They knew about it early, but they did things also socially and culturally to prevent the spread of disease, which included social distancing. Just a few months ago in January, and they're still operational. I don't hear any signs that the Taiwanese economy has arrested. And we keep talking about China's models. China's an autocracy. God knows exactly what they did to populations to suppose if they did stem the spread, what they did to do that. We don't really know how many people they sacrificed or in what process or, or, or mechanism they used. So, listen. No single life is worth knowing that it could have been saved the American way is we go as a country to an extent to save a single life, to even get the body of our loved ones who were killed in war and bring them back so families can get closure. That's the American way. We're not collectivists like Russia, like China, like Iran, that don't care about our individual citizens. We do. But we also got to be the most successful, most productive vibrant engine of intellectual and economic activity and success on the planet because we have smart people providing smart, balanced advice. So that advice now, I believe, needs to be proportional. As a doctor, I'm telling you, I get the lockdown right now for a few days to a week or so. I understand trying to flatten the curve, but the key is having a national conversation on what it means to flatten the curve below the capacity of the healthcare system. And the healthcare system may be pushed. We may need to absolutely, they want to open up Javits Center for beds to begin to separate things in New York or in any, any state, uh, bring National Guard assistance, absolutely, as this thing runs through. But if you look, there's no doubt. We've learned, even back looking at modeling from the 1918 flu epidemic, flu pandemic rather, learning things in this pandemic from Italy, from Seattle, and elsewhere. We can reshift and move around. But what is the, I can tell you as a doctor, I am also a father, husband, a citizen, and a community member who needs the economic health of my fellow members so that we may continue to pay our mortgages, continue to pay our medications, continue to have the dreams and aspiration of our kids. And sometimes we make tough decisions as a society once we know all the facts. Cato, let's look at some of the economics quick, and I'm not an economist, but I think that Chris Edwards had a good piece in... Uh, called the coronavirus and politicians versus the economy. If the economic shutdown continues, he said there will be massive plunge in incomes and tens of millions of people will not be able to meet basic expenses such as rent and food. Policymakers are acting quickly to slow the virus spread, but I fear they are shuttering too much of the economy because we face a months-long crisis, not a weeks-long crisis. So true. The government does not have enough money to keep the economy afloat until a vaccine arrives, maybe a year from now. 
The data from BLS shows the U.S. employment data in private sector industries horrifically down. 130 million private sector workers who generated $16 trillion of income this year are all but shut down. Massive business closings. How much of that would be lost and irrecoverable? Consider a scenario where half of the private sector workers are idle for three months. That would lose the economy $2 trillion of income out of that 16. Some can pay workers a while, maybe one or two weeks, but not more than that. A Washington Post piece, small business owner with 75 employees expressed her fear. Kathy Merrill argued that even a two-month closure would be a death sentence for businesses such as her. She might be able to keep paying rent and labor costs, but borrowing would be risky because she doesn't know when revenues may come back since this is an open-ended crisis. And he notes that he thinks she's right. Business layoffs and bankruptcies will soar if shutdowns extend very long. Tough decisions. But let's balance them. And yet, I don't understand why we should fear this conversation. Why do I, as a doctor have any any sense of fear that yes if the if people look back and say oh the death rate climbed because these doctors or these individuals said we should loosen up the lockdown well we made a balanced decision it might have cost some lives in numbers not one life ever being worth that when you put it in a sentence like that but when you look at a macroeconomic discussion it's appropriate to always keep things proportional and in perspective. You make the best decision possible and is the national suicide of an economy an appropriate response to a virus running through? Just as is it, is it for a family with a cancer or whatever it is running through one of your patients or a couple in your family to sacrifice the collective at the expense of protecting some. And this is not, okay, so the key to this conversation, I believe, is about it's not binary. We're having a binary conversation, just like we did with terrorism, and that's why I opened with that conversation. With terrorism, you were either a bigot or you were a uh, appeaser of radical Islam. That's how the conversation, the battle of the extremes, you either... Let radicals leave prison, and next thing you know, they're blowing up, uh, pretending to be reformers. And as we saw in London, one guy went in and stabbed others who was supposedly helping rehab. And so you're either idiotically appeasing or you are a bigot, a fascist, uh, etc. And that's not the truth. The reality is that we proportionally make decisions to try to mitigate threat and make the best decisions for our entire community's health. And that health is medical economic, psychological, and cultural. Our political leaders don't know the answer to this. Doctors provide the information of how it might affect different levels of the curve. But come on, we heard this week that Senator Rand Paul tested positive. Here's a guy with no symptoms by his own Im in immediate admission at the time he informed us he was positive. No symptoms, simply tested because he traveled a lot, he said, and wanted to be sure. 
set aside the whole ethical conversation about the use of that test kit as we're limited in values for set that aside i don't have time to talk about that right now but that tells you proof positive that we don't know the number under the curve we don't know that denominator very well to know where we are which brings me to the other piece that i would ask you guys to read called evidence over hysteria total cases are the wrong metric they're talking about how, what percent of the population is going to be infected. What percent are asymptomatic and or minimally symptomatic, got infected, developed immunity. And as I told you last week, it's sort of like when a cold virus runs through your house. The kids have the sniffles. One of them brings it home from school, the little Petri dishes at their grade schools. And then they bring it home. One parent gets really sick, cough, bronchitis, headache, fevers, stays home. The other one might have a little sniffle, might not even get noticed being sick at all. Do you think the other parent wasn't exposed and developed immunity? Usually they probably did as it runs through the house. So people have various genetic responses to the same virus. And you put on top of the genetic uniqueness of every individual's response to that viral antigen protein. You put on top of it other mitigating factors, immune systems, multiple chronic conditions, etc. And you are left with some people who end up in the ICU, critically ill on a ventilator. And some people who are not stay home with fevers and others who don't even notice being sick. But that tells you that unless you are mass testing the population, you're not going to have numbers. Now, studies are beginning to show as they studied in Iceland, for example... They randomly tested folks. They're showing an infection rate of approximately 1%. Iceland is leading the world in its testing of its entire population with 300,000 population. They randomly tested 1,800 citizens who didn't show symptoms and as far as they knew were not exposed to positive individuals. Of these sample, only 19 tested positive for COVID-19 or 1.1% of the sample. Obviously... This type of viral spread, as noted in this piece, and I'll give you the author in a second, is the most concerning. However, based on the level of media attention and the global size of positive infections, it seems more probable we keep looking for a COVID-19 viral trait that doesn't exist. One mechanism is looking at flight attendants, airport staff, pilots that have tested positive out of the thousands of flights since November 19, and only a handful of airport and airline staff have tested positive. Another data point is 93% of people who think they are positive are not. And still, if you look at most of the numbers, 1% of cases will be severe. 80 to 85% are mild, 10 to 15 are moderate. The fatality rate is declining as we do more testing and that denominator increases. I tell you, go to medium.com and look at this piece called Evidence Over Hysteria. It is... Written by Aaron Ginn. And now I'm finding out that actually it's removed from medium. Removed. <laughs> Is it, I, I, I'm speechless. A piece that looked at the... Maybe it's wrong. Maybe the data in there is wrong. But we can't even in our democracy have a conversation 
on the validity of data, the data that's evolving. We have a process of data verification from double-blinded processes and the FDA and others in America that delays giving patients medications for years. Because not only do you have to prove safety, you have to prove efficacy. And now in the worst of times with the most acute mechanism of throwing our population over cliffs, whether it's economic or medical, either way, which cliff do you want to be thrown over? The distribution of information, as I was mentioning in this article, of somebody who's critically looking better at denominator data and others, the piece was removed. I have it saved on my PC. But it's removed from every link you can find. You get the 404 that tells you there's something wrong with the way we approach the way we approach sharing information and discussion here on balancing facts. Yes, as Andrew Cuomo said, oh, you're entitled to your opinion, but not to your own facts. And Ben Shapiro should, by the way, uh, send Andrew Cuomo a little uh, royalty demand on that uh, comment the other day. But many others have said the same thing. But which facts? We still don't even know how to base facts because the data we're getting is in flux. What is the denominator of asymptomatic people? How big is that curve? What is the capacity of the healthcare system? We don't know because we can't figure out the top of the curve, the top, the numerator. And we're always two weeks behind and we had bad data. Was Italy different than us, etc.? All these things that are still questions. And yet if you start to question the extreme nature of the response, which might be protective, absolutely, thank you. I'm sure every life that's saved is going to be thankful. And as an ethicist, I applaud that. But let's look at the other ethicists. One of the premier bioethicists in America, Zeke Emanuel, who was one of the founding writers and fathers for Obamacare, wrote a piece in The Atlantic saying why he would want to be a DNR at the age of 75. He's getting close to that age, I think. And if somebody has no significant medical conditions, are you telling me that if they're 76 or the president of the United States, like Biden is going to be, that they should be DNR? And yet that was the piece he wrote. And it was thought to be courageous. And it was thought to be the, the lauded by the left and its intellectuals. Very well written. He's an intellectual. He's an ethicist made a very, some very good points about why we spend half, something like 50% of the healthcare dollars spent in the last two weeks of life. So mitigating that, and I think you mitigate it through free market mechanism, not through the socialist mechanism that the Obama administration did, but you can mitigate it through having patients have some skin in the game when it comes to the economic decisions. But again, at the end, it's usually economic. Because value of life, quality, what life is worth saving, what type of, of, of quality is appropriate for somebody at 80 to have, nobody's going to agree on that. And the insurance company should be making that decision if the quality is appropriate enough that the family believes or the patient believes that that's adequate. But as long as they have skin in the game. Once you take the economic skin in the game, people always make decisions to continue. Nobody wants to end grandma's or mom's or dad's life or feel that they did rather than ass assess that it was by natural causes or natural death.
from disease. So this process is the same as that there's so many lives we are making decisions on. And yet even a discussion of the balance gets removed from the internet, gets removed from the conversation, and not one pundit is sitting around discussing proportionality, discussing maybe there's a way to socially isolate, continue most of the economic engine of the, of, of the country after two weeks, tell America that we're going to socially isolate for right now seven days, maybe another seven days, but then we will start to relax the economy and figure out how to bear the brunt of not killing our economy and at least have a conversation about it. I can't find one conversation about balance and proportionality on any of the major networks. And in fact, it almost seems as if conservative networks have been shamed by the left into not having that conversation either. And again, left, right, I don't know what, what political dynamic we're talking about, but at the end of the day, someone's shaming others into making it impossible to have a conversation that every family has during every catastrophe, which is, are we willing to pay this economic price or that economic price for this health catastrophe and that health catastrophe? A lot of people pose false decision pathways because the numbers are wrong or the facts are being misinterpreted. Yes, we need firewalls. And yes, the people at the bedsides, the heroes and heroines that are, are, are saving the lives of our loved ones that might get this virus or might get critically ill, they should not be making these decisions. But we have to figure out how the triage basis is made. As some of the stories come out of Italy where Doctors see patients die before them because they don't have ventilators and, and other healthcare providers are dying because they expose themselves and trying to save their patient. It's like in war. I was a doctor in the Navy. You learn about how triage is done, A through D and E, through categorizing those that can be quickly saved, those that need more triage or those that may be needed to allow to die. That sounds like a horrific decision in a first world country. But sometimes a virus running through, when it was allowed to be released from an authoritarian communist country that refused to share information with the world, has left us with this decision process. But don't make it into false decisions. We are adults. American population can deal with these decisions, but we need to make them as a country and not just be told this is what we're going to do because the media is shaming everyone. As most of these pundits, by the way, are still making good incomes as the main industries right now thriving are, are uh, you know, internet, shipping, Amazon, media, etc., so my goal with this conversation is hopefully to wake up people to realize we need a coalition of doctors, economists, government leaders, etc. to begin to have a rational approach, a coalition for rational approach, proportionality in disaster. Every president who's responded to disaster from FDR on in the last hundred years gets lauded for their leadership when they exercise and demonstrate proportionality and balance. And yet, fear seems to be driving most of this. Political correctness and an inability to have this conversation drives 
We're educating Americans. Let's educate Americans so that when we do fall into a recession for a year, people say, you know what? We made that decision as a country. We made it as a country and we agreed to do it. But if we're all being forced to do it because Governor Cuomo and Newsom and all these others and DeWine and Ducey and President Trump all decided for us to have this, which is fine. We trust our leaders in some ways, but we want to have a conversation. The Wall Street Journal had some outstanding editorials this week about victory over coronavirus. The imperative is do no harm. What are we trying to do no harm to? Those initial patients or the economy? What are our goals? What are our goals? What, are we, what will be the help for small businesses? We're trying our... We're trying at every breath we have to treat and evaluate those and shift models of care from te- to televisits and other things to keep the most people healthy. But boy, the decision-making process that we've gotten used to, I can tell you in the primary care perspective, of working with families on making decisions for their care and extreme illness is not being applied on a national level. I don't see it. There's no balance in this conversation. It's almost as if let's just batten down the hatches and and at all costs, and that's it, hunker down into our bunkers and treat the virus at all costs. Okay, so the virus runs through in three months, and then what are we left with? America circa 1929? What are we left with? We took the most vibrant economy on the planet to defeat a virus and had no plan, no goal, no conversation, no engagement of the population. And we may need to understand that just as a lot of things in autocracies get dealt with better. I remember the conversation of dealing with the Brotherhood. The Saudis were dealing with the Muslim Brotherhood so much better than we are. Well, yeah, they're an autocracy. They decided to get rid of people like Khashoggi and he's disappeared and cut into pieces. I'm sure the Chinese figured out some mechanism dealing with this virus too, as they've dealt with the Uyghurs and others in horrific ways. So part of the price of democracy and freedom is that we respond to things sometimes slower, sometimes less autocratically, and with a bit of a higher price on some measures than others, but yet the measure of free markets may also be another measure. So when we look at success, when you finish and start in 2021 to look at how we approached the COVID-19 pandemic, the measures of leadership and success from left and right is going to be what was the balance of impact on survival for acute illnesses related to COVID-19, chronic illnesses related to other healthcare issues. Did those patients get displaced? Were there Italy-like scenarios that could have been prevented by better social distancing? And then how did our economy suffer? Did the shutdown, were there decisions in real time, not retrospect? That's always easier to say once you have facts and July 2020 that we should have done things different in April 2020? Yeah. But at looking back in April 2020, did we make the right decisions based on the facts we knew then? 
And as an American Muslim who's been fighting for our government to be tougher with Muslim radical ideologies, be it political Islam or otherwise, and yet also saying that we can't throw out our system and change who we are because that's why we're attacked, because we are not Saudi Arabia. We are free. We are liberal in our ideologies. And we can't change that. Similarly, as we fight a virus, there may be prices we pay to maintain the economic engine of this country that needs a balanced response, that needs proportionality. So please, I beg of you, open up the idea channels, open up the conversations so that we can all be engaged and invested in a balanced, proportional response so that when you decide to tank our income, when you decide to tank various business sectors, it's not 100%, but maybe you tank 50%. Maybe you, you cooperate, you create networks, whatever it is. But we are getting one-way information as we all sit at home. And even those discussing it on the television we're all watching, on the media platforms that we're all watching, are getting deplatformed. And that's not ethical. That's not democratic. And that's not rational nor proportional. We will make mistakes. The conversation has to be done so that people understand that you will make mistakes. But again, you're finding that a, a polarized, hyper-partisan society is now approaching another confrontation in which they want to constantly criticize the other side rather than figure out how to unite and balance proportionally the decisions that we have. So I hope we can begin to develop an online coalition of doctors especially because I think doctors that are rationally approaching this from a balanced perspective will let people know that, wait a minute, oh wait, if our doctors are saying this, if they're saying listen to the economists, listen to the politicians, listen to the pundits and academicians and others that aren't just doctors and infectious disease experts, but listen to all of our experts so that we can make a reasonable decisions, then maybe people will begin to wake up that, wait a minute, yeah, they don't want to see more sick, but they also want don't want to see the entire country thrown out with this infected bathwater. I'm here with y'all, fighting at the front lines, always here with you to have that tough conversation. We'll continue to do that on this program. Reform this. Share it with your friends at Dr. Zudi Jasser. Find me on Twitter, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I-J-A-S-S-E-R, or at Reform This Radio. Please, please stay safe. Try your social distancing. Don't don't make exceptions. We're seeing spikes in numbers of low of younger patients because they think they're invincible, because they're not doing the social distancing. But let's also have rational, proportional conversations about what we should do and realize that eventually we're all going to be immune to this. God be with you. God bless this country. And this is Udi Jasper on Reform This on the Blade Podcast. Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.